Good morning, Crossroads. Uh, if you haven't been here um, and you haven't heard the announcement, my name is Trig Veeker. I have the privilege of uh, being your new resident pastor here on staff at Crossroads. Uh, my wife, Mallory, you might see her around. She's sitting up here. Uh, is a wonderful woman, get to know her, and we have two beautiful daughters, Rama and Noel, three and one and a half years old. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I got to be honest, though, every time Father's Day rolls around, I forget that I'm a dad, and it's not because I don't love my kids or I forget that I have them, but that was just the thing that we did to celebrate my dad when we were growing up, so woke up this morning, people were texting me, Happy Father's Day, and I was genuinely confused because I forgot that I was a dad. So sorry, Rama and uh, Noel. Oh, gosh. But anyways, we have been in the book of Jude, and today is the third of four weeks in the book of Jude, and then we are going to be hopping into the book of James for the remainder of the summer. These two men were brothers of Jesus, half-brothers of Jesus, and I hope that you've been blessed in the way that I have been blessed by sitting under some difficult but needed teaching that Jude has for the church. And so can I just encourage you, if you haven't been here, uh, what I will be saying today probably won't be as clear if you haven't went back and listened to what Rod has preached before in the book of Jude. So let me just encourage you to do that. And I love that we've been reading the entire text every week because Jude begins his letter to the church at large by essentially reminding them of their identity. He says, to those that are beloved, called, and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is a love letter. This is about Jude's love for the church, to the loved ones of God. And then we get the purpose for the letter in verse 3. He says, I, I was going to write to you about our salvation that we all understand, but, but I was convinced, I was actually, I, I, I was convicted that I needed to plead with you, to urge you, to contend for the faith that was once and for all passed down to God's holy people. And so as Rod has explained, we pour ourselves out, blood, sweat, and tears for the faith. And then we sought to answer the question, well, what is the faith? Because faith, just the word faith on its own, can be talked about so much these days as this nebulous, meaningless, floating out in the ether kind of word that doesn't mean anything, but the faith is God's precepts, his laws, his decrees, his commands, his story about his Bleeding love for humanity ultimately revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the book that we all read today and all of it. And so he says, you need to contend for that. Partly because Jude is concerned that there are those, not outside the church, but inside the church, that have crept in and they have disgraced the grace of Jude's brother, Jesus, by basically saying, you can do whatever you want. You can think whatever you want. If you feel it, you should do it. If you want it, you can have it. And this is why in verse 12, Jude says, they are shepherds 
who only feed themselves. In verse 16, he says, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. And then he summarizes it one more time. In our text today, in verse 18, he says, they are scoffers who follow only their ungodly desires. And this word desire, I believe, actually unpacks the first half of what we're going to be looking at today because it's the Greek word epithumia. And epithumia is not just a desire. I love what Dr. Tim Keller says. He says these are our mega desires. They are the inordinate desires that flow out of us that need a mega thing to fill them. And practically every New Testament author, including Jesus himself, uses the word epithumia to describe what is wrong, not just with the hearts of these people that have crept into the church and are teaching false things, but with all of us. James, the other brother of Jesus, says, but to each person, they are tempted when they are dragged away by their own epithumia, their own desire, and they are enticed. And then after epithumia has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. James here is talking about sin as this thing that seduces us, that our epithumia, they, they, they seduce us into sin. And then that sin gives birth to a grandchild, and that grandchild is death. John, in 1 John 2, says the epithumia, the, the, the inordinate desires of our eyes and of our flesh, it causes beauty and appearance to go from just being a thing to the thing that we think that we need to have value, security, love. And it doesn't stop there. Jesus says himself, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the epithumia, the desires for other things come into our lives and they choke out his word causing our lives to be unfruitful. Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from epithumia, from sinful desires, which do what? Wage war against your soul. Or how about Paul? In his famous passage in Romans 7, he says, I was blameless. But then I reached the 10th commandment, and it absolutely cut me to my core. You shall not covet. And that word for covet is epithumia. These inordinate desires. Because Paul could look at the law and say, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. But when it came to coveting, it cut him to his heart. You shall not Epithumia. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or your neighbor's car or their bank account or their wife or their husband or anything. And see, coveting, this inordinate desire, it's more than just wanting. It's wanting something in an idolatrous way. It's wanting something more than God. It's saying, God, you are not enough for me. I need blank to be happy. And so when our desires create these idols, then these idols fuel the desires even more, resulting in us taking anything in our world, sinful or something even good, and making it the ultimate thing in our heart. 
This is epithumia. And Jude is concerned. Because Jude is living in a time where some church people, not just church people, but leaders, pastors, elders even, have crept into the church. And they have basically said, if you feel it, express it. If you want it, go get it. You want that fruit, you should have that fruit. It's all good. God wouldn't contradict you. God's grace is amazing. God loves you. God loves you enough for you to pursue and follow your own epithumia. That's where real life is. And I think it's gotten even more demonic today. Because we have leaders in the church that are not only encouraging these desires, but are rapid, wrapping their encouragement of these desires as if it is compassionate, good, and the only loving thing to do. Satan is the father of lies, and this is the biggest lie of them all. Go take that thing, you'll have freedom, life, and joy, but on the other side of getting that thing only sits one thing, and that is not life, it is death. And so if you're here this morning, and you are not a Christian, you can close your ears right now, because this is not for you. But if you are a Christian and you are leading people or discipling people and you are encouraging them to follow their own epithumia simply because they deeply feel them, you are not being loving. You are not being compassionate. In fact, you are deceived. And you are actively waging war on the souls of those that you preach this to. Do not do that. This is not foggy. This is not foggy. This is crystal clear. Our epithumia, when we follow them, wages war on our souls. That is not joking language. That is not language just goes, oh, well, whatever. This is serious. And so Jude says, we must contend. We have to contend. But this is where the passage really comes into play this morning because I believe this is exactly why we need this section in the letter because we can talk all day long about the fact that we have to contend, the fact that we have to fight for the faith. But if we don't know how to actually contend, then we're back to square one. Because it's so easy these days to fight the way that the world fights from a place of anxiety, from a place of fear, from a place of worry, from a place of despair. Just watch the news. I mean, it's just people throwing punches at each other. It's just them trying to get you to be afraid of this world. Uh, read the Facebook comment section or watch somebody post something controversial on Instagram and just watch people wail on each other. And if we are not careful, we as the church can be tempted to fight for the gospel and fight for something as beautiful as the faith as a whole, but do it with the nastiness of the world. So here's the tension. If we don't contend, we don't exist. But if we slip from contending into being contentious, being divisive, being quarrelsome, being rude, then we will fall apart as a church. Because 
A contending church contends for something, the gospel, but a contentious church is opposed to everything. A contending church filled with the spirit promotes and protects the faith, but a fleshy and contentious church forgets about the gospel and is just consumed with simply winning an argument. A contending church is full of love and joy and affection where we don't take ourselves that seriously, but we take God seriously, where we're able to be critiqued, where we're able to be told that we're wrong and be corrected. But a contentious church turns friends into enemies gladly for a sense of their own superiority and their own sense of righteousness because they aren't secure in the fact that they're beloved, called, and kept in Jesus Christ. A contending church filled with the Spirit is missional. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the people of God. It's about saving people. This isn't about winning an argument. This is about life or death, hell or eternity. That's what a contending church is about. They are about mission. But a contentious church is one of the fastest ways that a church will fall apart. And so I ask the question again, how do we contend? How do we actually do it? Well, let's read verse 20. He says, but you, dear friends or beloved, By building yourselves up in the most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. I mean, I was a football player in college. I was, I'm a fighter. I don't, I, don't, I don't mind conflict. And I was kind of disappointed. Can I just be honest? When I read this passage this week to find out that Jude's not like, just go get him. <laughs> Is anyone else surprised? I was so surprised that the way we are to contend, according to Jude, is this unanxious, unsurprised, getting at the love of God, investing in community, and showing people mercy that we have received from Jesus kind of contending. I mean, this is so surprising to me. This goes so against what my natural inclination would to be when I'm up against an opponent, when I want to fight with somebody. Because the true church contends in and out of the love of God. The true church contends in and out of the love of God. And to trace a line through this text, I want to drop the text into three buckets this morning. They're all our words. The first is remember. The second is remain. And the last word is rescue. Remember, remain, and rescue. Notice the first word that Jude gives here in response to this problem. It's actually incredibly surprising. Of all things that Jude could say, he simply says, remember. Not kick them out. Not try to play the cancel culture game. Not get our politicians to throw them into prison or start a Facebook comment war. Just remember. Remember what? The apostles told you. They told you that this was going to happen. They said that people would creep into the church and start 
preaching false narratives, false gospels. And immediately this brings into mind two applications. First, if you are here and you look at our world and you are freaked out by the state that it is in, as if God's sovereignty has somehow lost a grip on reality, do not be surprised, do not be afraid. It's not that God's heart isn't broken over sin. It's just that he is not surprised. The apostles weren't surprised, and we shouldn't be either. And number two, if you don't remember, you won't contend. If you don't know that this is something that will happen, not just something that could happen, you will not be ready to contend when it's time to contend. And even worse, you may be tempted to believe the lies that these people are preaching. And that just turns us into like this animal that's backed into a corner where we become combative because we're fearful and we're surprised and we really don't know how to react rather than preaching to the world that we have a hope that transcends all of the mess that the world is in. And so immediate application, let's be a remembering church right now. And remember what Jude's brother Jesus told us. I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will, not you might, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Is anyone else encouraged by that this morning? Thank you. So am I. Do we remember? Do you remember what Jesus said? Do you remember what the apostles said? Do you remember what this book says? And think about this. Jude's telling this to listeners that didn't have this book yet. They had to remember, remember. We don't even have to remember. We can just pick it up, open it, read it. I'm not that good at remembering things. Praise God I have the book. But Jude's listeners, they didn't have this book. Do we go to... Scripture, do we go to what the apostles said? Do we go to what Christ said? Do we go to God's word to encourage us, to, to, to cast out all fear of this ungodly generation that we live in? Or do we forget? Because if we forget, we won't contend. If we forget, we won't know how to contend. If we forget, we'll live in fear. But if we remember, we will contend. There is so much hope in scripture. So much hope. But there's also a picture that is being painted about the bleak reality of a world that is groaning to be restored. And we need that too. Are we using this book? Do we remember it? If we did, we would be secure in knowing that the apostles foretold it that Christ overcame it, and that God is sovereign over it. Do not be afraid. Simply remember, this will happen. Remember. Secondly, remain. The word that Jude uses is keep, but that starts with K, so I went with remain. Uh, so if you're like reading the Greek and you're like, that's not remain, I know it's not remain. Jude says in verse 21 what? This is a profound statement. Many of the commentators think this is the crux of how we contend. And he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
Keep yourselves in the love of God. A contending church contends in and out of the love of God. And see, this is so backwards because the way that I just in my flesh think that I should fight my epithumia, these mega desires, is to fight them with everything that I have. But you know how we actually fight these mega desires? We just point them in the direction of a mega God that can fill those desires. We just shift them. We say, these things do not fill us, so we're going to shift them over here. And this is what I believe he's saying when he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. The love of God is going to be the thing that saturates your heart so that you are not deceived. And not only are you not deceived, but then you can turn and unleash the same love that you have received to those that need that love. And then Jude gives, I think, three practical ways that we actually play this out. How do we remain in the love of God? He says, first, build yourselves up in the holy faith. He says, pray in the Holy Spirit. And then he says, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. First, build. Second, pray. And third, wait. This is how you remain in the love of God. Well, Mallory and I and our two girls, we just moved here from Columbus, Ohio, and we bought an old ranch. It's 1949 ranch. Some of you guys have helped um, uh, re reconstruct that. And when we got here, we, uh, we started remodeling the kitchen. It had one of the old, like, original 1949 stoves with the pull-out drawers. Some of you guys know what those are. I didn't. It was 6,000 pounds. <laughs> but uh, my mom's like, you should keep it. I'm like, absolutely not. Um, but when me and my friends went to demo the kitchen, it took us about six seconds to take out three walls, rip out the carpet, take down all the cabinetry, and all it required was a little bit of regression. But now, now we're building it back up. Oh, man, it is patient. It, is, it, it just takes patience. It takes precision. I mean, it's taken way longer than it took to tear down. It's taking skills from people that have skills that I don't have. I need them. And see, this is a picture of what it looks like to build up the church. We need each other. This is a communal command. The church isn't just interdependent, interconnected. It's inter. Dependent, I need the spiritual gifts and the things that you have to offer, and you need what I have to offer. And see, this is so antithetical to what is so in in the world right now because it is so in in our postmodern time to just deconstruct, to demo everything, to swing a sledgehammer, but not build up. But in the church, we build. We build each other up, and we build into each other the most holy faith. In a world that is obsessed with deconstructing, we will be a church that builds each other up in the most holy faith. And that doesn't mean that there aren't human things, human created things that sometimes need to be taken down so that we can rebuild stronger, holier, better. But when it comes to the most holy faith, it is a perfect masterpiece. It needs no deconstruction. It just needs you to stand on it and help build your brothers and sisters up in it. So we got to build. We got to build each other up. We got to build into each other. We have to be built up. We're not just built up to be built up. We're built up to be built up in the most holy 
faith. This is how we remain in the love of God. This is one of Crossroads' core values. You might not even know this. Community, wholehearted pursuit of our neighbor and one another. It's really simple. Are we building each other up? Second, he says, after build up, we must pray up. And he uses this phrase, praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. So if building up is about communion with God, then praying in the Holy Spirit. Building up is about the <laughs> communion with each other. Praying in the Spirit is about communion with God. And I wrestled with this one a bunch this week, I'm going to be honest, because I think it would be easy to look at a phrase like this and immediately turn it into some spiritual technique that we have to perfect. But I actually don't think that's what's going on here. What I believe spirit prayer simply means is that it is prayer that is prompted by the Spirit, it is conscious of the Spirit, and it is sustained by the Spirit. This is not some technique that we have to perfect. This is about getting alone with God, with the Spirit that we already have, letting him lead us, praying his words. This is the language of intimacy. Prayer is the language of intimacy with God. And that's why in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus basically says, don't keep up empty phrases or, or try to posture yourself as righteous when you pray like the Pharisees. Don't Babylon like the pagans. Just go into your closet and pray. Like your father can actually hear you because he can. He's there. Just pray to him. It's also why in Luke 18... Jesus holds up two different examples of prayer. He says, here, there was this one Pharisee, and he looked around at all the scum around him, and he said, thank God that I am not like those filthy sinners. And then Jesus introduces another character into the story, and this was a filthy tax collector, and the filthy tax collector simply draws his eyes to heaven, and all he says is, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. And Jesus turns and he says, one of these men, and it ain't the Pharisee, is righteous before God today. And I read that this week. And I'm like, here's fleshly prayer where it's all about me and my performance. And then here is spirit prayer where it's all about dependence on God. And then Jesus has the Gaul to say that just because of that prayer, this man was justified for before God, and I'm sitting there going, what do you mean he's justified before God? Do you know how we're justified? We're justified when we actually recognize, God, I need you. You're the only one that can provide righteousness that I need. That is what spirit prayer looks like. It's not about you. It's about being with your heavenly father. It's about recognizing your need for him. And what's so interestingly to me as I, as I continue to look at this spirit prayer phrase is that I just realized how many times I went to God in prayer in my life and I've just in my heart, I've said, did I do it right, God? Did I say the right words? 
Did I act the right way? If I'm praying in public, did I sound good? Did I do good, God? So I keep reading through passages in Scripture about prayer. And my eyes finally hit Romans chapter 8. And you know what Paul says? Paul says when we don't even have words to pray, when we don't even know what to pray, the Spirit of God intercedes for us, takes our groanings, transliterates them, and God receives them. And then the Spirit doesn't just do that. He intercedes for us according to God's will. And my jaw dropped. Do you know how many times I've read that passage? You don't have to be good at prayer. If you are a spirit-filled Christian, you have the spirit in you, even if all you have one day is just a groan, just groan it out because the spirit is going to take that and translate it into something that God can understand, and then he'll take it and he'll, he'll transform it into something that is in accordance with his word. Isn't that incredible? This is what spirit prayer looks like. This is not some technique to perform. This is not a style of prayer to get good at. This is about going into your closet, going into your homes, going into your workplaces, and praying as if God is actually there because he is. We're not done yet. But will someone please just pray right now for Crossroads Church to be a praying church? Belt it out. Anybody else? Amen. Let's build. Let's pray. And then lastly, he says, let's wait. This is the third way that we can keep ourselves. We can remain in the love of God. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God in verse 21 as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. I'm a millennial, so I've been trained by Amazon. I hate waiting. I hate waiting. Like, I want to roll a toilet paper, and I want it now. Give it to me right now. I will, I will accept nothing less. But a church contending in the love of God is a waiting church. And we are a waiting church because we wait for something. But when we commit ourselves to being a waiting church, this means that we're taking the posture of humility. We're essentially opening our arms up and saying, I'm not in control. God, you are in control. And this will pretty much guarantee that we are choosing to suffer. But being a contending church means that we are long-suffering. We are patient. We are 
filled with endurance because we wait for something. We're not just waiting aimlessly. We wait for a glorious eternity. We wait for God to usher us in to eternal life. That's what Jude is saying. I have a three-year-old. She can't wait for anything just like her dad. But when she knows something's good coming to her, oh, she, might, she might as well be 33 because she can wait days and days and days. She'll talk about it. She'll be pumped about it. She will never shut up about it. But she will wait and wait and wait. And what if this was the testimony that the world saw of the church? What if this was the testimony of Crossroads Church, that we were a waiting church? What if the world looked at Crossroads Church when we say no to the mega desires of the world, what the world has to offer, when we say no to putting our hearts in places that will never satisfy, we are able to tell people we are waiting for something so much better. So much better. I don't need that. What if we were ready? What if when false teachers crept into our ranks and they said, take hold of your desires, express them, love them, cherish them, we were just like, nah, we're chilling. We got something so, so, so much better coming our way. Something so much better. So we wait. This is how we contend. In the love of God, we remember what the apostles said. We remain in his love by building, by praying, by waiting. And lastly, we contend out of the love of God by rescuing. Verse 22 and 23. We're not going to get to the end of 23 if you're wondering why I kind of left that part off. We'll talk about that next week. But verse 22, he says, be merciful to those who doubt. Verse 23, save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now, I believe that there are two camps of people that Jude is addressing here. One are Christians within the church who are doubting, and the other are non-Christians, hence the word saving. So one is community care focused, and the other is mission focused. So this first group in verse 22, those who doubt, what does he say? He says, have mercy on them. We need not look any further than the man who comes to Jesus struggling with unbelief, but he so wants to believe. Is Jesus' response to turn him away or to scoff at him? No, his response was to bring that man closer. And this is what we are to be to those within our ranks that are doubting. Show mercy on them. Don't contend with them, contend for them. Don't fight them, fight for them. Pray for them. Build them up in the most holy faith. And if you are here and you are doubting your faith this morning, you are welcome here. You are wanted here. We will help you. We will come around you. We will pray for you. Stay in our ranks. Doubt your doubts. The Lord Jesus Christ has mercy on you. He has not abandoned you if you are doubting. And Jude's second instruction it's for a completely different set of people, I believe. And he says, save others by snatching them from the fire. These are non-Christians. And then the question becomes, as a church, missionally, are we willing to get some burns? Because as our culture descends into more and more perversion and sin and chaos, I'm watching as 
churches basically fall into two categories of temptation. The first, they look at the desires of the world and they go, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. The most loving thing for us to do is to just affirm those desires, accept those desires, celebrate those desires. But you know what you're doing if you're doing that. You are quite literally sending people into the flames of the fire. That ain't gonna be what Crossroads Church is about. But the second group of people is on the other side of the bandwagon. And they're the people that look at the world, they look at its sin, they look at its perversion, and they go, it's too far gone. To hell with them. They don't want to follow God. They can have their fun here on earth, but I don't care. Or they play the culture war game. And neither of these are right either. Because so what if we win the culture war and people's behavior change, but their heart doesn't change and they're still not saved? And that group of people leaves them in the fire. But the gospel offers a third way. The gospel says, snatch them, save them, go into the fire and get them. Go get those people. This is personal for me. I was drunk when I came to know Christ. And if someone came into the church and they contended with me instead of showed mercy on me and grabbed my hand and yanked me out of the fire, I'd be lost. But we need to be church that's missional, that walks into the fiery flames of the disgusting nature of our world. And we say, come on, we got something better. We have someone better for you. And his name is Jesus. And I believe the best picture of someone being snatched right out of the fire is from Luke 23. And this is where we'll end. Kids, you're doing so good. I'm so proud of you. And this is the exchange that Jesus has hanging on that cross that saved everyone that it confesses his name in this room. He says this in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung then and there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal looked at him and said, what are you doing, dude? And he rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly. Think about the humility there. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me, Jesus, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Do you see the scandalous, almost offensive love and mercy of God? This dude lived his entire life in sin. He wasn't baptized. He didn't know the 10 commandments. He had probably had horrible theology. But he confessed that Jesus was king and he repented. And Jesus doesn't say, not good enough. Jesus looks at him and he says, after he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus simply says, I'm not going to remember you. You're going to be with me. And you're going to be with me today in paradise. And Jesus snatches him from the fire. But this criminal does two things that every gospel transformed heart 
does. Number one, he recognized that he was worthy of the punishment that he was receiving. That everybody in this room, we deserve death, but we get life. He says, my deeds deserve this. We deserve to be up on that cross. But the second thing he recognized, he recognized that Jesus is king, that he is Lord. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, you are king. You take the rightful place on the throne of my heart. And see, this is the faith that we contend for, the radical mercy and love and peace of God showered on sinful humanity because of the person of Christ. And only the gospel can do this to a heart. When you see Jesus get in the fire himself for you, get burned for you, then your heart will be transformed. These people, these false teachers who pervert the grace of God into license for immorality, you know what their problem is? They don't see Jesus. They don't know who he is. They don't see what he's done. They do not understand him. Do we? Do we see Jesus? When you see your sin for what it is, and you see the king for who he is, his bleeding love consumes you. Then you stop following your epithumia, and then you start following Christ. Contending from the love of God is contending from a deep place of intimacy and security. This isn't something that we muster up. This isn't something that we have to try really hard to do. This is something that overflows from the mercy and love of God that he has first bestowed on us. Because the same Jesus that forgave that thief on the cross is the same Christ that lives in every blood blot believer in this room. Do you know that? Do you believe that? This is how we fight. In and out of the love of God. Listen to Jude one more time. To those that are called, to those that are beloved, <laughs> to those that are kept for Jesus Christ, may what? Mercy, peace, and love be showered and multiplied upon you. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of that God. Remember what the apostles said. They said that there will be people that come in, follow their own ungodly desires. When this happens, remain in the love of God. And then you walk out that door and you go rescue others with that same love of God that has been showered on your life. This is our call. This is how we contend in the love of God and out of the love of God. Remember, remain, go out and rescue.